where should dairy rank on the scale of cancer-causing agents? Should it be considered in the same vein as tobacco? There's a very mixed picture. We saw uh, really a pretty strong relationship with uh, relatively small intakes of milk and risk of breast cancer. Well, hello there, and welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen, or a view, or a download, wherever it is in the world that you are. We appreciate the fact that you are here. Today, we are talking about dairy, and trying to get to the bottom of this question. Does milk and cheese, do they belong in the same category as cigarettes and processed meat? Now, we know when it comes to tobacco and bacon that they absolutely, positively, no doubt about it, do cause cancer. But what about milk? We're going to be debating that on the show today, presenting multiple studies and looking at that from a number of angles. Dr. Gary Frazier, he is a renowned epidemiologist and cardiologist who was heavily involved in the Adventist health studies. We're talking about major research there, groundbreaking research. Dr. Frazier is very qualified very, very qualified to be speaking on this topic. But I will say that some of the answers that he gives may not necessarily be in line with what those who eat a plant-based diet believe. As a matter of fact, some of them will flat out surprise you. But in the end, after we go through all of these studies talk about all of this research, it's his conclusion that you should pay particularly close attention to. That, after hearing all of the science, perhaps is what matters most. Now, on the other side of the equation, someone with a firmer stance is oncology nutritionist Allison Tierney. For a living, She counsels cancer patients. What is the healthiest diet for them? And what does she make of this research? Well, what we are going to do is revisit a conversation that I had with her not too terribly long ago. This is a powerful 25 minutes that delves into all kinds of different topics regarding dairy and health. And she too is exceptionally qualified to be speaking about this because not only is she an oncology nutritionist, but this is a personal mission for her because her own mother is a breast cancer survivor. So indeed, we have a lot to dive into today as we debate dairy and try to answer the question, does your body really need milk? (laughs) 
As we continue here on the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee, it's time to bring in our next guest, and he is a distinguished professor of epidemiology who served as the director of the Adventist Health Studies at Loma Linda for 32 years. He will also be speaking at the upcoming International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine. With that, we welcome Dr. Gary Frazier to the Exam Room. Sir, thank you so very much for being here. Thank you. Pleased to be here. Your topic at ICNM this year is a really interesting one. It's about dairy consumption and the risk of breast and other cancers. What do we know about the connection between dairy and breast cancer specifically? Let's start there. It's a really complicated topic, and it's obviously an important one, mainly because dairy is uh, such a commonly used food food group uh, internationally, although not so much in Asia, at least in the past. And secondly, because breast cancer, of course, is one of the very most common cancers in women. So if there is a connection, that's, um, that's really important to know about. Um, the, the evidence is um, controversial, let me say. And um, to put it in one way, in summary, um, I think you'd have to say that there's a little bit of a cloud uh, over the question, particularly of milk consumption in this regard, with uh, out there being a thunderstorm and with some possibility that it may blow over. But I don't actually think so. But uh, you'll hear the evidence. The, the epidemiologic evidence is mixed, I'd have to say. And um, I'm going to talk some more about that. I'm an epidemiologist. But the other kinds of evidence that one can talk about as well are more kind of biological and uh, in some cases biochemical and mechanistic. So we can get into that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Let's uh, let's start with kind of the lay question that I think a lot of people listening right now might be wondering, and that is, well, I hear you say this, but where should dairy rank on the scale of cancer-causing agents? You know, should it be considered in the same vein as tobacco or processed meat, which is also getting a lot of play in the cancer community right now? Is it that same kind of evil? Not at all. Um, I mean, dairy has many positive aspects as a food in terms of in certain communities. Uh, It's a a high-protein food um but um so it's not uh an established risk factor for breast cancer in fact it's there's a very mixed picture uh we've just and partly why i'm speaking to you today is that we published evidence uh three or four months ago from our um, cohort of nearly 100,000 uh seventh adventists across the united states that um in our hands at least we saw really a pretty strong relationship with uh, relatively small intakes of milk uh, and risk of breast cancer. And it was what we call nonlinear and would be somewhat easy to miss um, in that there was a very steep rise in risk up to about all three quarters of a cup a day, which is not a whole lot. And thereafter, the risk continued to increase, but at a much slower rate. So it was very nonlinear. And uh, just out of interest, uh, we found absolutely no signal, adverse or otherwise, for cheese. So for dairy lovers, that uh, might be a helpful fact. 
Um, so, you know, that's where our interest really uh, sparked, if you like, uh, in this regard, common cancer, commonly eaten food. But having said that, we've also published evidence on dairy consumption and uh, colorectal cancer. And there we found, we find consistent with a number of other studies, I should say, that um, milk consumption again, and perhaps dairy in general, seem to have a protective relationship with colorectal cancer. And when we dug a little deeper, we actually found some evidence that it was very possibly the calcium content of the milk that was involved. Um, others have found uh, for yet a third cancer, prostate cancer, that um, there appears to be an increased risk with consumption of dairy. And uh, the studies are not all consistent in this regard, but there are a number of them that look pretty compelling. And we have as yet unpublished data that's in that vein very much as well. Um, so it's an interesting picture. And uh, it, it's uh, perhaps no uh, fluke that the two cancers that at least we're finding uh, a positive relationship, particularly with milk, are the two most best-known hormone receptive cancers. And perhaps we can come back to that point uh, when we talk about some possible mechanisms. You said that it may have a, a protective measure. Fluid milk does has a protective measure, you said, with, I believe, uh, colorectal cancer. Is that correct? Yes. And you said that that may be due to calcium. So I think that those who are listening right now and are like, well, you know, I, I do eat a 100% plant-based, a vegan diet. Could I get those same protective properties from other sources of calcium? Um, well, you know, um, that's certainly a very good question. And I can't say that I've got evidence to prove that that's the case, but that would certainly be a very um, reasonable conjecture. Um, I might say that uh, we um, here at Loma Linda have, uh, I think, the largest study in the world of vegetarians, and particularly strict vegetarians, the vegans, where we're studying about eight or 9,000 of those as part of this kind of 100,000 people in total, half of whom are non-vegetarians. But when we look at these cancers in the vegans as compared to our other vegetarians and our non-vegetarians, we find some trends that are pretty consistent with this. Like, for instance, we've published that uh, for prostate cancer, our strict vegetarians, our vegans, have about a 35% protection as compared to our lacto-over vegetarians who have about the same risk as the non-vegetarians. So the vegans kind of stand out. When we look at breast cancer, the same kind of thing is true. And when we looked at uh, colorectal cancer, the vegans actually were doing reasonably good because after all, they don't eat meat and processed meat and so forth, which our non-vegetarians did. But they weren't doing as good as the lactose there, which is kind of what you might expect if the dairy was protective. So even when we looked at these dietary pattern groups, we found trends that were consistent with the dairy hypothesis even though that alone didn't prove it. So that was partly what tempted us to focus in on uh, dairy and dairy milk, although uh, going back to about 2010 or 11 in the medical journal called Medical Hypotheses, it had been written about 
based on mechanistic grounds that there could well be a relationship between dairy and some of these cancers uh, and uh, ecologic data that just looks at uh, trends over long periods of time and whole countries, which is, you know, etiologically a little weak, but nevertheless, a uh, country like Japan, for instance, there's been uh, a tremendous rise in dairy consumption since the 1950s or so. And paralleling that, there's been this big rise in, in breast cancer and some of these uh, other cancers. Well, many things were going on in Japan, beside an increase in dairy consumption. But at least you start, you start to build a picture that looks consistent. Let's talk about those mechanisms. That's, word, uh, that's a word that has come up a few times during this conversation already. So what are those mechanisms here that you think are causing those increased uh, risks of breast cancer? Let's start there. Right. Well, there, there, there's no absolute proof about these things. And of course, uh, actually, when we talk about causality, um, one very rarely gets total proof. But you just, as I said, build a picture and get more and more consistent. Um, but uh, really the mechanisms that I'm aware of that people can talk about and have talked about uh, are really two primarily. One is to do with uh, sex steroids in milk, and the other is to do with the impact of uh, insulin-like growth factor 1, IGF-1. Um, so talking about the, uh, the sex hormones, um, in this country, uh, I believe it is true that about 75% of the dairy herd uh, is pregnant at any one time. They're all uh, lact lactating by definition. Um, so it's no surprise that the hormone levels of both uh, progesterone and estrogens would be relatively high in, uh, say, cow's blood and some of that leaks into the milk. Uh, not huge quantities, but uh, very measurable quantities. Um, and uh, like I said a minute ago, it uh, can hardly escape one's attention when one is talking about prostate and breast cancer, that these are two hormone responsive cancers. Um, there have been a few, and there need to be many more studies of feeding milk to um, subjects, and indeed one can detect a signal on urinary excretion of uh, some of these, uh, the products of some of these hormones. So that's one hypothesis. Uh, the other hypothesis relates to this IGF-1. IGF-1, by the way, has been um, pretty well proven to correlate quite nicely with the risk of both breast cancer and prostate cancer. Um, it uh, has some growth hormone-like activity as well. And um, it turns out that uh, some of the IGF-1 from the, the cows, the bovine IGF-1, can also be found in the milk. And moreover, it can be absorbed. It's not totally broken down. Uh, by the body. But secondly, uh, there's uh, good evidence now from a number of feeding trials that milk consumption uh, does promote the additional secretion of IGF, human IGF-1 by those that are drinking the milk. 
so there's a, obviously a story there that one can make that drinking the milk and whether you talk about the bovine IGF-1 or the human IGF-1 that it stimulates the production, this is a known risk factor for, for some of these cancers. So uh, the fact that you can talk about it doesn't prove that it's so, but uh, it does help to be able to come up with some mechanisms that make some sense. Were you able to study exclusively was this whole milk or did you look at this reduced fat milk or skim milk? I've seen other research that has broken it down uh, in that fashion. Were you able to do that as well? Yes, we were. Um, we, we just had two categories, whole milk and uh, reduced fat milk. And we looked at that very carefully. And I think we could look at it with fairly good power. And we found absolutely no difference. We found the same positive signal with both of them. Um, so we kind of conclude from that that whatever's going on is probably not related to the fat uh, in the middle. So, right. So you can eliminate, you can skim the fat off the top, but you, you can't eliminate the hormones uh, from it. What about the mechanisms for prostate cancer? We just talked a lot about uh, the breast cancer scenario there. Is it much mm-hmm. in the same with prostate? Well, uh, IGF-1 is still a potential uh, problem um, for prostate cancer as well. Uh, so that's, I, I mean, I think both of these hypotheses do hold for prostate cancer potentially. Um, the, uh, the World Cancer Research Fund um, report has equivocated a little bit on whether there's a relationship um, that they would call established between uh, dairy and prostate cancer. I think at the moment they're not willing to go that far, but there are a number of epidemiologic studies which find that kind of positive signal Whereas for breast cancer, I've got to say there's only one or two, and there's a number of others that are, look relatively neutral. And one of the things I'm going to talk about a little bit is how that conceivably could have happened. What are some of the traps? What are some of the distinctives of the relationship we seem to be finding that uh, look, look a little bit different? And I've already mentioned one is the strong nonlinearity where you see the steep rise in risk early on and then a relative, not a plateau, but it, it, and if most of the people that you're studying are up towards that plateau because they tend to be higher consumers, then that would be a hard signal to, to detect. Uh, having said that, there are a couple of studies that did have a lot of people that supposedly were at the very low end and uh, their results were still unclear. But um, I would have to say, if the papers I've published, the one that, um, as I said, provoked this um, talk, the one we recently published, I would argue is methodologically one of the strongest papers I've ever published. Um, but having said that, it's a little bit out of step with a, a, num- uh, a number of the other epidemiologic papers. So it's, it's interesting and controversial. And why is it that it's so hard to study nutrition science? It seems like, as you just kind of alluded to, if you read one study, it says this. If you read another study, it says that. You read a third study, and it's something different. Why Why is it so hard to get consistent findings? I think, I think there's two main reasons. Um, well, one is that um, when you focus in on a particular food as compared to, say, a food group, um, there, there are, you, you ask a lot of people when you have them fill out a questionnaire and ask how many 
times a week or times a day they eat carrots or drink milk and how much they drink and asking them to summarize that uh, over, say, a whole year period and give some idea. People can often do a reasonably good job of that, but it turns out the errors that we had thought, I guess, for a number of decades would kind of tend to cancel each other out, do not. And what they do is that they tend to bias the relative risks that we talk about down towards the null, the 1.0. And they can do that in a quite a substantive way uh, that's been shown a number of times now. So these errors tend to uh, hide existing effects. Um, and they're there in everything that we do. So that's one thing. The other thing is that, you know, there are hundreds of nutrients in our diets, there are actually hundreds of different foods. And uh, for those of you who are epidemiologists and know anything about confounding that we talk about, uh, it really makes a big difference as to um, what is, who, which variables you have in your model, what results you get. And if, for instance, you pick a variable that is closely related, say, to milk consumption, and uh, maybe is measured more accurately than milk, people can think about it, it may carry the milk signal and may be some other food, you see. So um, sometimes you can get some foods that become surrogates for other foods, unless you have them all in the model that are going to be important. Well, you can't put all hundreds of foods in the model, but you've got to somehow put in half a dozen foods along with a whole bunch of other reproductive variables, for instance, that might predict breast cancer. And we do those things and investigate very carefully the potential effects of uh, other foods. So the fact that it's a uh, highly multivariable situation is, a, is another big trap and big difficulty for this kind of work. Uh, the other thing that I might mention, particularly in reference to this, the fact that we seem to find that there's a big signal down at the low end of milk consumption creates a problem for many studies that where there's missing data in a questionnaire. I mean, when people fill in a questionnaire, in our hands at least, about one question in 20 will uh, be missed. Just by chance, people maybe lay the questionnaire down, then come back later. And, and so somewhere around about there, one, between 1 and 20 and 1 and 30. If you ascribe all those as zeros, as many studies do, you're contaminating that low end with, uh, with data that are not really zeros, but are called zeros. And so you create a problem for yourself in trying and interpret the low end. And that's where we believe here a lot of the action is. So there are all these kind of little traps that, um, that uh, need to be talked about and thought about. And I would imagine, you know, doing a controlled study of this magnitude that would have to be measured over a number of years, just that would be next to impossible to be able to just gather all of the data yourself and not have to rely on the study subjects doing self-reporting. Yeah, I, I mean, a randomized controlled trial would be very nice, but in most uh, areas of nutrition and cancer particularly, it's simply not possible. You're not going to take a person and say, hey, you're going to drink two glasses of milk a day for the next 20 years. And another person who's randomly allocated to say, 
you're not going to have any milk for the next 20 years. And you've got to think about long periods of time. You've got to think about the compliance of population. So it really means that you're stuck with the observational studies and we've just got to learn to do them well and to back them up with mechanistic studies and biology. All right. Well, fi- final uh, piece here before uh, we move on, because I-, I need to ask you about your work uh, with the Adventist Health Studies. I mean, that is just uh, what, what phenomenal work that is. Um, but I, just to kind of put a capper on dairy here, um, you do not think that it uh, it is all the evil that it's chalked up to be in certain circles. Um, would you recommend guzzling it by the gallon, or is this still something that you think that people should, you know, just kind of ingest cautiously? I should say. I think probably the latter, as far as a recommendation. Now, if you are a strict vegetarian and want to do that, my word, that's perfectly good. Although if you have a bad family history of colorectal cancer, that may not be the best choice um, unless you like to rely on supplementing with uh, vegetable uh, sources of calcium perhaps. But um, no, I mean, the the dietary guidelines are three glasses of milk a day approximately. Uh, I personally view that with considerable caution given what I know now and given our own data, but looking beyond that. So there are many good alternatives for um, vegetable milks these days, and I'm tending to prefer those, uh, but that's just because it's easy to do. It's not because I'm convinced yet that milk is the bad guy, but I think that there is a distinct possibility that as time goes on, we will discover that, uh, that that may be true. Do you suspect that uh, we'll see, uh, you know, in these updated dietary guidelines that should be coming out early next year, any movement away from dairy? We've seen Canada take a step in that direction. Do you expect any kind of movement here uh, in the States? Um, You know, I'd have a hard time prognosticating that. There are all kinds of influences that uh, come to bear on uh, those kind of judgments. And, you know, the dairy industry is a uh, pretty potent force, isn't it, uh, in most of our communities. And in fact, the country that I grew up in in New Zealand, um, um, I've sometimes wondered about the integrity of my passport as I publish these things, but so far I still haven't. So. <laughs> I, yeah, I think that that's uh, you're putting it mildly, uh, the way that you describe the dairy industry. That's fantastic. Um, last thing here, uh, your work on the Adventist Health Studies, you were uh, involved in that for more than three decades. Is that correct? Yes. Mm. That that is phenomenal. Um, talk to us. I mean, that that was such groundbreaking uh, research there, both uh, health study one and and now health study two. Uh, how much effort and time and labor went into this, and what was the goal when you set out? Because this study has been so widely cited by so many researchers that really it has been a game changer in terms of nutritional research. What was the original goal with it? Well, in fact, there's been um, three large studies, and uh, really they they span a period of just over 60 years. Um, The first big study was uh, funded in 1958 and was in California and was really based on um, studying smoking habits at that time. You'll remember the early studies of smoking and lung cancer and British doctors were in the early 50s. This was 1958. The Adventists didn't smoke. 
And so the American Cancer Society had a big study going, and we kind of tagged onto that. That was about 22,000 Adventists at that time. Adventist Health Study 1 came along about 1974 and studied 32,000 California Adventists again, with the focus being on cancer, longevity, cardiovascular disease, but this time very much in relation to diet and not so much smoking. And then uh, Adventist Health Study 2 began in 2002 and is still ongoing, although it's currently unfunded. We've been unable to keep it going with NIH funding, unfortunately. Um, And uh, again, we were focusing on diet and cancer specifically and still have a lot to write and a lot to analyze from that uh, big study. So, yeah, it's been an enormous effort. I imagine the funding has been about $35 million over those years. That's not adjusting for uh, inflation. Um, I came along in 1980, but there were uh, investigators before me that got this going at at Loma Linda, uh, whose um, uh, tutoring I very much benefited from. Dr. Roland Phillips, Dr. Jan Kuzma, and even those before him. So, yeah, it's been a multi-decade effort, but building on a population that, you know, some people perhaps don't like the idea so much of studying a religious group because they are supposedly not so scientific uh, and uh, rely on faith and so forth. Adventists, uh, by the way, are pretty well-educated people, but um, they are an epidemiologist's dream because, uh, you know, they don't smoke, drink very little alcohol. Uh, about half of them are vegetarian. Some of them are vegans. About half of them are non-vegetarian. So in this one group that are relatively homogeneous in many ways, you've got this very broad dietary spread. Uh, and some of the major confounding variables are absent. So that's really what has driven the funding and uh, some some of the interesting findings that we've been able to produce. Is there anything that you found uh, during your time that has really stood out and just kind of floored you and say, wow, I was not expecting that? Uh, yeah, yeah, several things. I mean, one is we were the first um, study to, uh, I think, provide pretty strong evidence that's been confirmed multiple times now that um, small quantities of nuts seem to be quite protective against heart attack. Um, And, you know, there's a number of studies and it's now part of the American Heart Association recommendations. And, you know, nuts were thought to be fatty foods, kind of bad foods, snack foods. You put salt on them and, you know, so forth, roast them. But um, on the other hand, they have a high content of um, unsaturated fatty acids. That seemed to be one of the important things. Then the uh, one other thing I could mention is that um, our Adventist population, of course, is pretty well known as now having this blue zone, American blue zone label. And uh, I mean, our data that support that, which really came from our Californian group, was so strong. Uh, We found that the men on average, once we adjusted for everything we could uh, reasonably think of, we're living seven years longer than our Californian neighbors and um, a woman about four and a half years longer. And, you know, the statistical significance was quite extreme. 
So um, that, that was a really fun finding and uh, not totally unexpected, but the strength of the finding, I'd say, was. Yeah, uh, that, that is something that uh, definitely gets talked about almost on a daily basis uh, at the office here uh, with the Physicians Committee is, is the life expectancy. It's just what an extraordinary study. Uh, Dr. Gary Frazier, thank you so much for your time. This has really been fantastic. And you will be presenting at the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine coming up on August 6th. Going to be doing a much deeper dive than this conversation that you and I just had. Um, Going to be armed with a lot of facts and a lot of figures. And I personally can't wait. Thank you. So after hearing all of that, it is Dr. Frazier's conclusion that he is trending away from dairy. Now he's still not ready to chalk it up to the devil that's found in a pack of smokes or a strip of bacon, but he is in fact heading in that direction. I'll tell you, Whether it's this show or any other, it is important that we have balance. And sometimes that means hearing science, hearing data that doesn't necessarily jibe with what it is that you may believe personally. It also, though, gives us the opportunity to look at things from all angles so that we then can make the best decisions for ourselves. And because we want to have balance we also want to look at some other research. And for that, I want to revisit a conversation that I had with oncology nutritionist, Allison Tierney. Now, as I said at the top of the show, Allison works with cancer patients. This is what she does. She counsels them on best eating practices. And for Allison, dairy is every bit as devilish as tobacco. And she reached her own conclusion after doing her own research. And that is what we will be getting into today. The link between dairy fat and estrogen and the link between dairy and other potentially cancer-causing hormones like IGF-1. And you're also going to hear Allison talk about 5-alpha-P. So this is the other side of the dairy coin. Continuing here on the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee with the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. And this particular week, we are putting the focus squarely on dairy. And I thought the perfect person to talk to about this. She is an oncology dietitian. She is board certified in oncology nutrition. She is also the co-founder of Wholesome LLC, and she is also just a remarkable woman. With that, we welcome Allison Tierney to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Chuck. It's a pleasure to be here. The pleasure is all mine. I think a lot of people still have this perception that dairy is healthy, It's essential for strong teeth and bones, and you need it for the calcium, and milk is the only place in the world that you can get calcium. That's something that we're taught at such a young age. But you, as an oncology nutritionist, when you hear somebody say that, what comes to mind? 
Well, first off, Chuck, I'm from Wisconsin, so I absolutely believed that growing up as well. There was always a glass of milk by my dinner table because I thought that was the healthiest drink to have. And so I grew up with that mentality too. But as I learned the research more and more, dairy was actually the first thing that I took out of my diet when I transitioned to a whole food plant-based diet because dairy, unfortunately, is a really big culprit when it comes not only to cancer, but chronic disease as well. Why is that? I I was talking with uh, Dr. Neil Barnard uh, last week, and he and I were chatting about, you know, people not really putting the connection in there when you eat this dairy that it's so loaded with hormones that your body kind of freaks out, essentially, to put it in in layman's terms, you know. Um, Let's let's get a little bit nerdy about that. What are these hormones in there that are just wreaking havoc? Yeah, absolutely. I love to get a little bit nerdy about nutrition. So when it comes, <laughs> so when it comes to hormones found in dairy, uh, the biggest thing is a lot of people will say, well, if I'm drinking a milk that comes from a cow that's not treated with growth hormone, then I have nothing to worry about, right? Well, the answer is unfortunately that's not true because all foods of animal origin contain sex steroid hormones such as estrogen. Mm. So it it's a natural component of animal metabolism. So it doesn't matter if it's organic, grass-fed, not fed hormones, it's naturally found in that product. So when we are consuming dairy products and other animal-based products, but specifically dairy, when we're consuming that, we're getting extra estrogen and sex steroid hormones that are coming into our body and being used as that. So what a lot of people don't know is that this hormone that is from animal-based products is actually very identical to human estrogen. Hmm. So for example, did you know that chicken estrogen is actually identical to human estrogen? I had no idea. That is the first I've ever heard. Yeah. So like chemical structure wise, it's actually the same where there's a lot of talk about phytoestrogens, which I know you guys have discussed on your show before that it's not the same as human estrogen, but chicken estrogen is the same and identical as human estrogen. Isn't that fascinating? That is mind blowing. I never knew that the humans and chickens could be so similar. Yeah, exactly. So um, the biggest thing is that um, when we have this extra, these extra hormones coming in, our body naturally has a feed, a feedback loop. And the feedback loop means, okay, our body, we're making all of these hormones. Oh, now we have enough. So we're going to stop. We don't need it anymore. Or we're going to slow it down. When it comes from exogenous sources or outside sources, our body doesn't detect that and can't therefore slow it down. So we're just having all of these extra hormones come in that unfortunately, because we're getting that higher amount of estrogen and other sex steroid hormones, we're increasing our exposure to that, which is increasing our risk for breast cancer and other hormone related cancers. So hormones aren't exactly like excess nutrients. If somebody is taking a supplement and odds are, you know, a lot of it just comes out with bodily waste. Not exactly the same thing when you're ingesting hormones. Exactly. It's not the same thing that our body is still going to utilize it. So for example, um, when we're overweight or obese, all of our fat cells produce estrogen. So the more fat cells we have, the more estrogen we produce. It's not just something that we can just get rid of through our urine, like a water soluble vitamin, our body hangs onto that. And unfortunately uses it in many ways and using it usually meaning fueling extra growth. So when it comes to cancer, the biggest thing that I teach my clients is that it's all about 
excess. That's the issue here is excess. So yes, do we need estrogen? Absolutely. Do we need sex steroid hormones? Absolutely. But it's all about when things are over consumed and in too, in excess that it promotes excess growth. So when we talk about excess growth, cancer is uncontrolled cell growth. So we want just enough growth. We want enough growth that our hair cells turn over, our skin cells turn over, GI cells turn over, but we don't want that extra growth because that's where cells can start becoming rogue or just grow with abandonment. And that's where things like cancer can develop. Yeah, and, and that just, it, it makes all the sense in the world to me. You just have too much of something and, and your body just just kind of doesn't know what to do with it. And when the body doesn't know what to do with something, again, I'm not a nutritionist, I'm not a doctor, so this is all lay terms, but the body just kind of spazzes out. Um, let's talk specifically about some of these hormones. Um, I know that a big one specific to breast cancer is IGF-1. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yep, so IGF-1 stands for insulin-like growth factor. So the biggest thing about IGF-1 is it is known as the primary growth hormone that promotes cancer. So what I always tell people is IGF-1 is actually a natural hormone within our body. When we're kids, adolescents, when we're growing, we have higher amounts of this IGF-1 and that's completely natural. That's completely normal. But when we start getting into adulthood and we have more IGF-1, I always ask people, how much do we actually want to grow as adults? Not too much, right? We Again, right. we want those certain cells to turn over, but we don't want excess growth. So IGF-1, again, it complements that, that excess growth. And the higher the IGF-1 is in your system, the higher the chance of developing cancer. And when it comes into dairy and nutrition and other animal-based um, foods, unfortunately, the release of IGF-1 is actually appeared to be triggered by the consumption of animal-based protein. Mm. So that's where this IGF-1, again, it's all about that overexpression. And if we're eating too much of it, um, we know that we're going to be overexpressing that growth. Another one that uh, I know comes up in these discussions is something called 5-alpha-P. And that's another one that I'm really not too familiar with at all. Shed some light on that one for us. Yeah, so 5-alpha-P is another sex steroid hormone that's found in dairy. And it actually plays a large role in creating testosterone, but it's also been found to be the driving force behind acne. Now, a lot of people will be like, wait, Allison, why are you talking about acne? We're talking about cancer here. But the thing is, is that there's actually been found to be a connection between acne and cancer, and more specifically between acne and breast cancer and prostate cancer. It's a visual indicator that there's excess hormone and excess growth that could be happening. Really? Yep. So this 5-alpha-P has been shown to be capable of what's called inducing estrogen receptors in breast cancer cells. So what that means is that cancer cells can become more sensitive to estrogen and thus increasing the cancer cell's ability to use the estrogen to fuel its growth. So again, it kind of comes back to that natural feedback loop is that it's fueling that growth, it's getting extra, and we can't regulate that. So when we're talking about acne, I mean, that's a sliding scale. Should somebody be worried if they get the occasional blemish or should they be more concerned if it's kind of a chronic persistent thing? Be more concerned when if it's a chronic persistent thing. So I can absolutely relate to adult acne and prior to adopting a plant-based diet, I struggled with it completely. Um, but as I 
got rid of that dairy and I got rid of that meat, my acne just cleared up. I remember talking to my dad and he's like, wow, your face looks so much better. And this is like my late twenties that I'm talking to him about it. And I was like, yeah, I think it's like this diet change that I'm doing. He's like, I think it's because you're not eating as much meat or drinking as much dairy. And I was like, I think you're onto something, dad. And then this (laughs) was kind of like, I had already been diving into things a little bit, but I kept doing more and more. Um, I used to have horrible acne and um, I've been able to definitely clear that up through diet primarily alone, just diet. And so, um, yes, if, again, if it's chronic, that's more of an issue because there's underlying issues there. I would have never guessed because just looking at you on Skype right now, you have this, you have such clear complexion. It's a healthy complexion. Dare I say a glow? Uh, Thank you know, you. <laughs> I, I just, you don't strike me as, as a person who ever struggled with acne, you know? So, yeah, um, it was actually pretty horrible. Uh, I'm so glad that's behind me. So, this is also something important to touch on. I think that a lot of times people, are scared to make adjustments to their diet because they think that the people who are telling them to do this have always had the perfect diet themselves. Maybe your patients think that, well, you know, she was probably raised whole food plant-based since childbirth, but nothing could be further from the truth, you know? It helps you having this story and this background of like having been there yourself and and being able to make that connection, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Because, yeah, people, I was just talking to someone about this yesterday. They they said that you can relate to people because you weren't just this person that quote unquote, like went vegan or grew up vegan and so forth. Um, It was all about, um, like I grew up with what I would say a healthy standard diet where it was like small amounts of meat, but I'd say it was definitely higher amounts of dairy um, because of where I live and being in Wisconsin and everything like that. Um, But I think it really does help that I have that perspective that I actually did eat that way at one time and made the transition into a whole food plant-based diet because I can help people do that transition and have been there before and can also talk to them about not only the health benefits, but the other things that they'll experience like increased energy, improved skin, I mean, the benefits and can actually relate to how that happened and what the progression was like. So it helps a lot. Do you see kind of a like a, a change in in your patients when you explain that story to them and they're like, wow, OK, like I got this now, like it, it's cool, like almost a sense of relief? Yeah, I think it's also what's huge sense of relief for a lot of people is seeing that somebody that's done it before that didn't grow up just living that way, that it was just natural and innate in them. Um, I have always had an interest in nutrition, but it's not like I had the most perfect diet growing up. I used to, as a kid, I pretty much just liked corn, carrots, and maybe some romaine lettuce every once in a while. So to teach them how you can expand your diet, even when you maybe are one of the pickiest eaters there are, that you can, I can relate to that and encourage them to make those changes. Um, so yeah, it's, it's helped with my clients in their process so much more. It definitely will make them sit on the edge of their seat and listen up a little bit more. Completely different, but when I speak to people about weight loss and they don't know my story and I hold up that old pair of pants, I can tell right away that they are listening more intently. Maybe you see a few more pens, you know, picked up and, and you know, they start taking some more notes. So it's really kind of cool and important uh, that you have that background. I want to go back to uh, these hormones here because we are talking about dairy and breast cancer. I don't want to get too far off topic. Um, there's another one in particular that we need to touch on, and this one is called mTOR. 
What is mTOR? So mTOR is actually a protein that's found within our body that's essentially the master regulator of cell growth. So here it is again, me coming back to like cell growth and and growth. And it's really the fact that dairy, eggs, meat, junk food, etc. can actually increase the IGF-1 and this also this thing called mTOR. Um, so what it does is it upregulates this and that's increasing the cellular response due to the increase of the number of receptors on the cell. But I'll tell explain that what that means. Um, so it, what it does is it actually activates this um, activator of TOR that leads again to that overstimulation. So it, again, it's a natural signaling pathway, but when it's a problem is when we're overstimulating it and we overstimulate it with things like dairy and animal products. And it's actually been recognized as the fundamental driving force behind diseases like acne, obesity, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, Alzheimer's, and cancer. Um, so when we have this master regulator of cell growth that is upregulated, then we are going to be upregulating or increasing cell growth, which is where cancer, it all comes back to cancer again. That's a big one. I mean, you just rattled off so many different chronic conditions, you know, with this one protein. Um, I, I'm sitting here and I look down at my notes and I came across this stat. And I think that the idea for a lot of people, because dairy, let's face it, it is so addictive. This is another topic that Dr. Barnard and I have discussed at length is, you know, just how addictive addictive cheese can be because of something called casomorphines, you know, and who doesn't like something that's high in fat, which cheese obviously is. But right. this study concluded that uh, if you reduce your consumption of dairy by at least a half a serving per day, you significantly lower, significantly lower your risk of developing breast cancer. And that was uh, part of the cancer epidemiology study. Um, you know, so you can start with little changes and work your way. You know, so don't be afraid that you have to go all in right overnight. Yep, exactly. And that's what I say to a lot of my clients as well. So if maybe you're drinking um, three glasses of milk a day, breakfast, lunch and dinner, even if you just cut it back to just dinner time, you're going to have some drastic improvements right there. Um, my mom is actually a breast cancer survivor and my mom used to drink like two 16 ounce glasses of milk for breakfast every day. And um, by sharing a lot of this information and just also experiencing it, she's been able to, she cut out dairy completely at her breakfast time. She hasn't completely gotten rid of it, but she just had a follow up with her doctor the other day and all of her labs are better as a result, including her cholesterol and so forth. And knowing that it can reduce the risk of breast cancer recurrence because of reducing the overactivation of mTOR, IGF-1, and the extra estrogen that could be circulating is super important to her because her breast cancer was estrogen receptor positive. So by reducing dairy, you're reducing all these things that affect hormones in the female body and the male body. Well, first of all, I'm, I'm really glad to hear that your mom is a survivor and she's doing so well. I do have a question, if you don't mind, and, and this is a serious one. She is a survivor. She knows that there is this link between dairy and cancer. And it's not just her that faces this, but we were just talking about weaning yourself off. But why is it so hard, even in that position, to cut it out completely, do you think? Is it because it's so addictive? I think it has something to do with the fact that it is so addictive, but I also think it has to do with the social environment that surrounds dairy. So and I think that when people have those social events, those entertaining events, 
they don't necessarily want to be the person that's picky and ask if there's dairy in that or and so forth. So I think it has a lot more to do with the social environment too, in addition to the addictive properties of it. Let's talk about eating for uh, survivors. Their diet, it needs to obviously be cleaner. You, you want to keep that risk of recurrence as low as possible. What are some things that you would recommend for somebody who's been there and has come out on the other side already? How should they be modifying their diet? Absolutely. So I do recommend their diet going into the direction of a whole food plant-based diet as much as possible. And usually what I tell people is that they're not interested in adopting that 100% or at least not right now. I kind of talk about like this spectrum. So on one side of the spectrum, you have a whole food plant-based diet, which we know from research is ultimately the best diet for the prevention of cancer and several chronic diseases. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you have the standard American diet. And I always tell people, the closer you can just inch a little bit over to that other side of the spectrum, you're going to be making drastic improvements. And it's because the research shows, and if we're going to talk specifically more about breast cancer, but it research shows that there is lower breast cancer risk associated with higher fruit and vegetable intake, and then also higher breast cancer risk associated with higher saturated fat intake, which meat, dairy, and processed foods essentially. So if we can talk about even just increasing their fruit and vegetable intake and decreasing their saturated fat intake, they're going to improve their chances, excuse me, they're going to improve their, um, they're going to improve lowering their risk of cancer recurrence pretty significantly. And even beyond that, research shows that by eating a plant-based diet, along with walking every day, can actually improve our cancer defenses in just two weeks. Wow. So like it's pretty incredible. So they and in this particular study, they found a suppression of cancer growth that was 20 to 30 percent better than just two weeks prior when they were eating more of a standard American diet. So you can increase your cancer defenses 20 to 30 percent by making simple changes in your diet and exercising more. That is amazing. And and that kind of goes back to, you know, just baby stepping yourself there is like we were talking about with your mom and cutting back on the dairy and the you know just market improvements that she isn't seeing that's really remarkable so we are talking specifically about dairy but i think that a lot of people at this point might be wondering okay well you just mentioned fruits and vegetables kind of broadly but are there some in particular that they should be looking to eat absolutely well the biggest thing when we're talking about it broadly i do want people just to t think about fiber more right so the foods that contain fiber fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, and nuts and seeds. And that's because um, with when we have higher fiber intakes, research shows, for example, that postmenopausal or excuse me, premenopausal women have 62% lower odds of breast cancer with higher fiber intakes. And it even goes for estrogen negative and or the triple negative one that they have the benefits are 85% lower risk for the triple negative breast cancers, the higher the intake of fiber. So first and foremost, if you can just include more fiber into your diet, that's beneficial right there. So, um, and I do have to note that that research shows that it's not effective if you take it from supplemental form. So if you were to drink, take Metamucil or something like that, you're not going to get the benefits of it. So I would love for people to be eating dark leafy green vegetables, cruciferous vegetables, because those are going to provide them other cancer fighting nutrients or phytonutrients that are going to give them that benefit. But sometimes when I say eating more cruciferous vegetables, people are not 
really excited about Brussels sprouts and broccoli and cauliflower, right? <laughs> but that's such a fun word to say. Like, you can't say it without smiling. <laughs> Cruciferous. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And But those are things that I never used to like either. And one thing that uh, my sister and I used to do, we actually went to college together. But every time we went to the grocery store, we decided that we were going to try one new fruit or vegetable. And then we'd come home and we like YouTube, like best way to roast cauliflower. And we would do it. And from that experiment of simply just dedicating ourselves to trying, we found that there were so many more things that we liked. Sure, there were still a few things that we didn't like, but we found that we liked so many more things just by simply doing that experiment. So research shows that if you can just simply increase that risk or excuse me, increase that fiber intake, you are naturally going to reduce your intake or excuse me, you're naturally going to reduce your risk of breast cancer. So for example, for every 20 grams of fiber intake that you have per day, it is associated with a 15% lower risk. So for example, if you have 40 grams of fiber per day, that's associated with a 30% lower risk of breast cancer. So it just goes to show the power of fiber. So yet, so when it comes to specific foods, overall, I usually just tell people fiber-rich foods, which are plant-based foods. Those dark leafy green vegetables, which are a powerhouse when it comes to nutrition content. But I also really like recommending flax seeds. Mm. And specifically ground flax seeds, because we can't actually absorb the nutrients from a full formed flaxseed because the shell is too tough. So ground flax seeds, they contain a phytonutrient called lignans. And there are 100 times more lignans in flaxseed than any other type of food that there are that there is. So flaxseed is actually a wonderful breast cancer powerhouse against it. So I love people to incorporate if they can a tablespoon of ground flaxseed every day. And the we're talking about prevention for, for survivors. You know, we want to prevent the recurrence. But what about somebody that's currently undergoing treatment? And the same kind of principles, the same philosophy applies here? The same philosophy and same principles do apply. Now, I would say, though, when someone's going through active treatment, things can be different depending on the side effects that they're experiencing. So if someone is having extreme diarrhea, for example, I actually don't want them to be having a tablespoon of gratin flaxseed a day until we can get that under control. So that's where it's really important for individuals to be working with a registered dietitian or a cancer dietitian during their journey. However, when people are going throughout the course of treatment, this is more just anecdotal evidence, meaning we, from our experience, but individuals that adopt more of a whole food plant-based diet throughout the course of treatment, we're noticing much less side effects and better adherence to their treatment. So I have encouraged Dr. Barnard. I'm like, Dr. Barnard, you got to do a research study on the plant-based diet during treatment because it's pretty incredible just the things that I've seen in my own patients for some treatment protocols that are really, really tough. And not to say any of them are easy, but then they're really, really tough and they're having minimal to no side effects. It's pretty incredible to see them go through that journey and come out even stronger on the other side. Yeah, I had somebody on the show uh, who told me about during the course of his treatment, he had prostate cancer, but he that's when he went on a whole food plant-based diet. And everybody else in his group, they would go in every week together to get chemo. Everybody else in his group continued eating that standard American diet with hamburgers and donuts and things like that. They would actually eat that during the course of treatment. And he didn't 
and while everybody began having those horrible side effects that we always hear about, he did remarkably well, remarkably well. Yeah, absolutely. And I see that in my own patients time and time again. That's really an incredible thing. Um, real quick, since this is dairy, let's kind of put the capper on that. As far as plant-based milks, milk alternatives and cancer prevention, would you suggest soy milk because there are so many benefits of cancer prevention from soy? Is that the best one to go with or can you really kind of not go wrong here? I don't think you can really go wrong overall. I do like soy milk as a choice as long as it's unsweetened um, because there are so many great benefits of those soy products being protective against breast cancer. When it comes to research for other milks, there is some research in almond milk, although almond milk doesn't provide the same exact nutrient profile that soy would. It actually, the research is actually more particular in prostate cancer, but because it's a hormonally based disease as well, we can somewhat relate that to breast cancer or infer from it. And it actually, dairy milk increased the prostate cancer progression by 30%, but almond milk decreased the prostate cancer progression by 30%. So from across the board, you can't really go wrong. I do advise people to be cautious of like a coconut milk only because of the high amounts of saturated fat in that. Um, and we do know overall that breast cancer individuals, they there are remarkable studies out there that show a low fat, whole food, plant-based diet is the best approach for breast cancer prevention and for prevention of recurrence. Uh, Allison Tierney, thank you so much for spending this time with us and, and shedding so, so much light on such an important topic. Cannot thank you enough. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me here and all the work that the whole Physicians Committee does. I think it's super important. So thank you for the work that you do. Allison has an absolutely brilliant mind when it comes to health, and nutrition. Just absolutely brilliant. And I encourage you to check her out online. Maybe take one of the courses that she teaches. WholesomeLLC.com is her website. That company, that's one that she founded with her twin sister. They've teamed up for health, doing just incredible things. WholesomeLLC.com. And we've also included a link to that site in the episode notes. Allison, by the way, also featured in Dr. Barnard's latest book, Your Body in Balance, because we didn't get a chance to talk about this during that particular interview, but she was able to overcome PCOS by adopting a plant-based diet. And that is one heck of a story. So also in the episode notes, you will find a link to an interview where she and I discuss her own health journey. And I really, I highly encourage you to check that out as she discusses the best diet for PCOS. And that interview, that one garnered a lot of interest. Now, as we wrap up today, I want to share a couple of other notes about dairy and chronic disease. Now, this is from a 2019 analysis. It's published in BMJ. The data used in this particular study was actually from three big studies. The Nurses Health Study, the Nurses Health Study 2, and the Health Professionals Follow-Up Study. And when you combine all three of those, you're talking about well over 200,000 participants. So you get some pretty good data here. Here's some key findings. A higher intake of skim or low-fat milk 
was associated with a slightly higher risk of overall death. It also had a greater chance of dying from heart disease and colorectal cancer, those two in particular. Now, meanwhile, if you think back to the conversation that I had with Dr. Frazier, I asked specifically about the type of milk that was studied. Because in this study, it found that whole milk was associated with a higher risk of death from all causes, as well as heart disease and cancer. Now, here's where it gets particularly interesting. The study finds that when people swapped out just one serving of dairy per day and instead chose nuts or legumes, they lowered their chance of dying during the study by 14%. That's just one serving of dairy per day. And then you want to swap out another serving of dairy and replace it this time with whole grains? Well, that translates to an 11% lower risk of death. And then if you take out dairy and one serving of red or processed meat, you just take those out. Don't even replace them. Just take them out. Drop the risk of death by 5%. And again, we're talking about studies that had a combined 200,000 people or more. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of good data. Excellent results there. Now, Dr. Gary Frazier is one of the featured speakers at the upcoming International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine. That will be on August 6th through 8th. And for the first time ever, it will be completely online. So you can sign up right now and attend from wherever it is in the world that you are by visiting pcrm.org slash ICNM. Now, let me run down a list of some of the other speakers who will be there. This is just wow. Dr. Neil Barnard will be speaking, as will Dr. Christy Funk and Dr. Kim Williams. Dr. Michael Greger will be among the speakers, as will Dr. Danielle Bellardo and Dr. Ted Barnett, Dr. Christy Cobb and famed fitness guy Marco Borges. All of them will be there and so many others. PCRM.org slash ICNM is where you go to register. And someplace else that you may want to go is over to Apple Podcast or Spotify or Stitcher, wherever shows are available, and look for the Exam Room Podcast by the Physicians Committee and hit that subscribe button. And please also leave a five-star rating. Because last month was the biggest month in the history of the show. More people downloaded the exam room last month than ever before. And for that, we are eternally grateful. But it is not just because of the incredible numbers. What makes this truly exciting is that the more subscriptions we get and the more five-star ratings we receive, the more people will have access to this potentially life-saving information. Because the higher subscriptions and five-star ratings, the higher we climb in the rankings. And the higher we climb, the easier it becomes for people to get their hands on all of this extraordinary data. 
So head over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher and please subscribe to the exam room by the Physicians Committee and leave that five-star rating and do your part to help make the world a healthier place. I want to say thank you once again to my guests today, Dr. Gary Frazier and Allison Tierney for joining us. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, stay safe, take a stand, and keep it plant-based. <laughs>